Welcome to the Living Clean Podcast. I'm your co-host Mason S. With me as always is Travis K. This podcast is not meant to replace meeting, sponsorship, step work, or service. This is meant to be just another tool in your recovery toolbox. Our guests are here to share their experience, strength, and hope with recovery through Narcotics Anonymous. Thank you for joining us. All right. Welcome back to the Living Clean Podcast. I'm your co-host, Mason S. I'm an addict, and with me, as always, is TK. Yeah, yeah. All right. Today, we got Mr. J.W., uh, JW, won't you tell us your clean date and where you attend meetings at? My clean date is April the 21st, 1996. And I attend, my home group is, uh, the Tupelo group of Narcotics Anonymous. So, you know, what's interesting about that is today happens to be, we are recording on April the 21st, 2023. How many years does that give you today? Well, it's 27. If I can make it to midnight. 27 man congratulations happy birthday brother well, i appreciate that if you want to just start off you want to give us a walkthrough of how you found narcotics anonymous well this time 27 years ago i was laying on an iron bunk in a pea farm in washington parish monroe louisiana i'd gotten busted i was out on bond from texas from getting busted over there and so I wound up getting time in Louisiana and Texas come got me and I moved around on several different units and wound up on a unit called the choice more unit up in Bonham, Texas. I don't know. I can't remember exactly how long I'd been there, but I went to the bathroom one day and, and there was an introductory guy laying by the commode. And as I sat there, I picked it up and started reading it. And uh, that's how I got introduced to Narcotics Anonymous. I'd never heard of it. So take us through that process of when you pick that book up and you start reading a little bit of it. What were some of the initial thoughts that you had with the stuff that you were reading? Well, I, you know, I didn't know anything about recovery. I mean, I really didn't even, had never thought about being an addict. But the first pamphlet that's in that book is, am I an addict? And so it's 29 questions that I had answered by the time I got to the end of it. I think I'd answered yes to every one of them or some resemblance to yes. Um, and I thought some of them were really stupid questions because I didn't know about recovery. So I thought, you know, do you ever use a loan? Well, hell yeah. I mean, <laughs> why would I want to share you know, my mother taught me to share when I was a little kid, but she always said, if you ain't got enough for everybody, don't pull it out. You know, she's talking about bubble gum and suckers. <laughs> but I knew I didn't have enough. But anyway, the one that really kind of made me think this is stupid is, um, do you avoid people or places that do not approve of you using drugs? I thought that is stupid. Why would I go around somebody that doesn't approve of it? And that's not going to have what I need. So, yeah, I got down to the end of it. And when it said, uh, you know, it doesn't really matter how many yeses you had. What's more important than that is how you felt inside and how addiction had affected your life. 
And that kind of made me pause because I had a lot of guilt and shame about my kids and, you know, being locked up again. And uh, I'd been searching for something, but I I just, I never could find it. And uh, the more I read through that book, you know, I got over to the uh, pamphlet, Another Look, and man, it really described you know, my experience with addiction, but it kept calling it a disease and its symptoms. And, you know, that kind of perplexed me because I didn't know I had a disease. That was kind of like a, you know, something you got having sex or something like that. You catch a disease. What was the next step after you discovered this book? Did you ask somebody or where did you actually find the book? It was laying by the commode on the floor. And, you know, I got done doing what I was doing and I went back to my bunk and I carried it with me and and just kept reading it because I had never, um, we didn't sit around and talk about getting clean. I'd never known anybody that got clean. We either got dead or we got locked up. I think some folks got religion, but they just disappear, you know, and we wouldn't see them no more. And, being self-centered it was just that much more for me you know if they didn't show up so i kept reading that book and then um you know one of the phrases in there talks about uh addiction is not a way of life you know at best perhaps is a way to survive for a while but even in this limited existence that really caught my attention how I, i you know knew that using drugs limited me to certain kinds of jobs where I could use and, you know, I wouldn't keep employment. I mean, I always had a job, but I couldn't keep employment very long because I just kept moving on and um, everything revolved around using, but it said, even in this limited existence, it is a way of despair, destruction and death. And I thought, you know, I never, call my connect and said, Hey, what you got? And he said, you know, I got an eight ball of despair, hundred dollars, you know, or, you know, a bag of, of destruction. You know, we never said, Hey, I, I got a hit of death. You know I mean? We just didn't market our product that way. And we didn't talk about it. I mean, you, you would talk about things. I had a connect one time, every time I talked to him, you know, I got some shit that'll paralyze you. And my first response was, I am on my way. Do not answer the door. I want it all, you know. And an ordinary person would be going, That's, that doesn't sound, you're going after shit. Not only you're going after shit, you're going after shit that's going to paralyze you. So, you know, I didn't think with an ordinary brain. You found the introductory guide while you were in the pea farm. So I'm guessing. No, that- I was already in Texas. Oh, you were in Texas, but you were in. Yeah, I was in Texas. Yeah. So how long is it between the time you find that introductory guide up until you actually walk into an NA meeting? Oh, it was probably a year and a half. Year and a half. So what did that year and a half look like from the time that you found the introductory guide to you actually got to the meeting? 
The next book I found was um, It Works How and Why. And so I, I really dove into that and started reading about myself, you know, through the steps and everything. And then we got a counselor that started having internal meetings. And we had this guy that would come on a Monday. Now, he was from AA, but he shot dope. And I didn't understand that. But anyway, um, he would do a big book study on, on Monday. And then the next week, he'd bring somebody in to speak to us. And they were all addicts. And they would talk to us. And I started hearing people share, like, about their experience. And so I could identify with that. And then my dad sent me a newspaper from Tupelo and I found the Tupelo group's address and their meeting schedule. And so I wrote him a letter from prison and um, a couple of people, a guy named Steve and a girl named Rita started writing me every week for over a year. And they shared their experience with me through the mail. Sometimes it was a one page letter. Sometimes it was three or four you know, pages. And they just described what NA did for them. And and that kind of really made me think that's what I want to do when I get out. You know, it's crazy when I got there, there wasn't a whole lot of um, spirituality talked about. (laughs) We were pretty intolerant and I fell right in with those folks. And um, we were you know, branded N.A. Nazis because we we didn't put up with people saying they were sober. And I mean, it was really not it wasn't what N.A. teaches us. It was more about personalities before the principles. And I did that for a while. And my first sponsor relapsed and I got another sponsor that started kind of bringing me out of that because he had been taught the NA way and his personality didn't get in the way of it. And so mine still did. So he had a chore for a while. <laughs> I was still not a nice person. I'll put it that way. All right. Well, let, let's go from there then from, so you were talking about how you were still intolerant, taking a lot of that mindset from, you know, being incarcerated so did you take that with you into the meetings when you first got out? Yeah, when I first got out, um, you know, the only thing that was missing in my life at that time was the substance. Um, my behavior, my thinking, my ideas and attitudes, My, you know, I had no spiritual life at all. And I, I was, you know, if you want to get technical about it, I was, I was an atheist and... Um, didn't believe, you know, in God or anything like that. Religion, I'd rejected that a long time ago. And so, you know, working the steps was kind of a challenge when it was talking about God. So I had a, a guy give me, you know, use the acronym for God as good orderly direction. So that's how I worked the third step the first time. And I used the group more than anything as my higher power. Cause when I go to that room, I knew something was special there. I had a feeling about it and I, I went on my gut, you know, 
the whole time I was an outlaw, I mean, that's how I survived. I went on my gut. And my gut kept telling me to keep coming back. And they were very, um, you know, there came a point where my my sponsors, my, my second sponsor started challenging some of my ideas and attitudes. You know, I remember him asking me a question one day. I was bitching about my, I think it was my second wife. And, and I was saying all this stuff that she wasn't doing or what she was doing. And, and he said, well, what was your part in that? And I didn't have an answer. You know, I just threw it back at him. Didn't you hear what she did? He said, yeah, but you didn't talk about your part in it. And I had to wait a couple of days because he, was, he wouldn't talk to me about it till I come up with an answer. And I went to a meeting and somebody talked about unrealistic expectations in ourselves and others. And that was a turning point for me. I may still see the other person's part in it, but I had to look at mine as that's the only thing I could change. And to accept others just the way they were, that was a really big challenge for me to meet people where they were and um, because of the intolerance, you know. So it, it's been a challenge for probably the first decade I was out. I kept getting in really sick relationships that started out by just hooking up and then trying to like them. And, you know, it didn't work out too good. Married a couple of them, and that didn't work out. And uh, so, you know, I, I I really, every time I talk to my sponsor, I usually tell him, thank you for your tolerance and patience, you know, with me, because that's what it took for me to start doing something different. Plus, I had a good example. You know, I kept watching these guys that were softer and gentler than I was in it was attractive, you know. I didn't want to be an asshole, but that was my, you know, what they call that, my default, you know. I mean, that's what I started out with. That's what I brought to NA, and uh, it was hard to get away from that. Hey, so you brought up something a minute ago talking about people called you uh, an NA Nazi. When you were young in recovery and you were getting on people about being so saying they were sober instead of clean and – Walk us through the process and the challenges and how that's changed in you from that time till now. You know, I think the thing that changed me the most was I saw how it hurt people and it wasn't accepting. I remember me and my my first sponsor sitting there after a meeting. He called it character assassination. Uh, we were talking about somebody and what they had said in a meeting, and we didn't realize there was – a newcomer, it was his first meeting. He had sat back down with us, but he was across the room and we really wasn't paying attention. And about halfway through our discussion of how, you know, we didn't like that person and what they said, I looked up and he was looking at me and the guy said, um, how can we help him? And, you know, I didn't get it then because, you know, my response was fuck him. I just motherfucker don't know what's going on. You know, I, I just went off like I always did, and the guy got up and left. I don't know if he ever came back. But there came a time when enough people relapsed, and I saw how our intolerance, and, and, and actually I, I read in the third tradition to prove somebody wrong, 
you know, I had to find it in the book, you know, to prove them wrong. And uh, I found a lot of stuff that kind of proved me wrong. And there was this internal conflict then, like I've been doing this all the time and it's supposed to be right, but this book says that we're supposed to be tolerant and patient and we're not God. And, you know, if they don't look like us, talk like us, you know, we can rob them of their finding their way. And it talked about um, fanning the flame and that kind of, you know, I hadn't fanned the flame. So what would you say to somebody who gets really frustrated or gets intolerant of people who are new and they, and they share that, you know, they, they use that language from other fellowships and things. What's what, what have you learned is a healthier way to deal with that? I just talk of, I, I use in a language. I'm clean, my recovery, my clean time. Um, when I give out the key tags, you know, if somebody had been clean and sober or they were sober in the meeting, you know, I'll say, Hey, you got to work 24 steps cause you're clean and sober. You know, I'll make a little comment like that, but I'm not, I'm not hurtful with them. And, and I ask them, please keep coming back. When I give them a key tag and give them a hug, I tell them, thank you. Cause I give them a really good hug and kind of talk in their ear, you know, thank you for doing this. Thank you for staying clean. You know, I want them to know that we need you. And I don't like it when people say that it's not like, I'm, you know, Somebody described it as, well, if you got a nail in your tire, would you wait till it went flat before you fixed it? And I said, yeah, I'm hoping that my example, and I'll tell them, you know, like, hey, if you're in an NA meeting, you're clean. If you go to AA too, that's cool. But you're, you know, you're, you're an alcoholic over there. You're an addict here. That's, and I explained to them why I say that, because um, we don't treat, substances we treat the disease you know the steps are set up to treat us whenever the substance is gone you know if we relapse we're not in recovery anymore the process is still working on us i'm sure because people keep coming back after a relapse but if they survive that um i think that the thing that changed me the most was my sponsor brought it up at a retreat that, you know, the person I had been abusing for a couple of years was fed up with it. And I probably didn't need to go to sleep that night because he's going to beat me to death with a piece of wood. And uh, I got to thinking about that. And I asked his forgiveness the next day. His response was, fuck, you treat everybody like that. Why are you asking me to forgive you? And I said, well, I just need you to. And um, he did. And that opened the door for me. And I had to make amends to him. So I couldn't say those things anymore, even though they came to my mind. Um, and then I had to treat other people the same way because to practice that, I had to change. And that was a really big turning point. And then um, principles for personalities you know i wanted to i was on a, like a spiritual quest or something looking for because things kept happening that i couldn't explain you know now that you know i kept telling my wife it's a coincidence the wife i got now 
that's a coincidence. You know, I was just in the right place. It was a chain of events. And she come in one day and fucked that all up and said, well, I got you a new definition of coincidence. And I said, what is it? And she said, well, when God wants to remain anonymous. Mm. So, you know, it gave me a way around my limited way of thinking. And that's always happened for me. If I get hung up on something or don't have the answer, you know, I go to a meeting or I call somebody and and they'll give me a way around that limited way of looking at it with a different perspective or, or something like that. And I'm open enough, you know, I finally got the honesty, open-mindedness and willingness part, the how, um, to where I'm open to, to new ways of looking at things. Um, I want to come and look over your shoulder so I can see what you're seeing. If, if we're in a conflict, especially, uh, I don't try to be right anymore. <clears throat> Because then we have to draw a line and you pick sides. You know, is Mason right or are you right? I don't want that. I don't want it to separate us. You can be right and I'll be happy. You know, I never got anything about being right except on a test when I was going to school. So I, I don't know. A lot of things have changed over the years. You know, I sit here and reflect back of where I started 27 years ago. You know, I thought about something today that I've never thought about. When they put those handcuffs on me, I walked out to them that mo- this morning. I walked out to them about 9 o'clock this morning. It was two cars, two SUVs of NARCs, probably eight or ten of them. And that dude put the handcuffs on me and said, you're under arrest. I surrendered for the first time that day. Now, my definition of surrender was I laid down my arms and they led me away in chains, you know? But really, I I made a decision the day before, like it says in the third step. I made a decision. I'm not running this time. And then I surrendered the next time. I have never thought about that in 27 years, that how I relate that today. You know, my my definition of surrender today is I just don't have to fight me anymore. You know, the book says we just don't have to fight. Well, I've been in a fucking fight with myself most of my life. I don't have to do that anymore. Um, I make a lot of decisions today based on my experience. I go back to the third step all the time. You know, I need good orderly direction. And then my higher power is unconditional love. So it's not hard to turn my will and my life over to the care of unconditional love. Because I know it's going to take care of me. And that's kind of how, you know, NA is broad enough that it lets me, the process happen in my time. Because y'all keep letting me come back, (laughs) no matter what I believe, you know. And that's that's the cool part of this program is it, it's just so simple once you can see it that way. It's not hard to do today. I mean, I'm an addict. Don't get me wrong. I haven't been cured. Using is on my list of things to do every day. It's just down around like 13 or so. <laughs> I got some really important shit to do. And as long as I do that, it'll stay down on 13. I've seen a lot of people stop doing the really important stuff and using keeps moving up the list, you know, to 10, you know, nine. And then before you know it, the important stuff isn't that important anymore. And a lot of them have died. 
I ain't no different than them. I'm just going to get through today without having to use any drugs, and I hope I don't hurt anybody and hurt myself. That was another thing that changed for me was I started loving myself, you know, enough that I'm not willing to hurt me anymore. That man so, in the mirror kind of thing. Yeah. Where you exactly. get where you're like, I love that guy now. Yeah. You know, compared to I used to get my right eye and my cheekbone in the rearview mirror when I'd be driving. You know, I'd look. I hated that son of a bitch. His name's Jack. He ain't never going away either. That son of a bitch is always trying to get me to say shit to people that's not kind and it's not helpful. So I had to learn how to pause and not say the first thing that comes to my mouth, especially to my wife or one of y'all, you know? I want to be helpful, not hurtful. And I want to, like, be able to look at that guy in the mirror and say, good job. You did a good day. You had a good day, you know? You did something of worth. I heard this thing about a new day the other day, and it talks about, you know, we got this new day and, we can do whatever we want to, good, bad. But at the end of it, it talks about what will we leave in its place for the price we paid for it, our time. So I'm never going to get this day back. But I want to leave something in it that's of worth, that somebody else can take it and give it to somebody else, and you know that I may never meet. But it counts somehow or another, I think. You talked about going through a couple of marriages while you were in – recovery and uh you're now married again um yeah. <laughs> what take us through the process of the relationship you know how have you how has your ability to participate in a healthy relationship changed throughout the process well, of working the steps and all that for one thing um when i met my current wife um we didn't hook up you know we didn't have sex we didn't have anything physical. Uh, we would sit and talk to each other for hours, and I got to know her, and I liked her. And I even said, you know, let's not worry about that part, and, you know, and let's just see if we can be friends. And we became friends, and then um, she mentioned at first, you know, like, I think you need to kiss me goodnight next time. And I said, no, nah, I, don't, I don't kiss my friends goodnight, you know. And so there was a little bit of a friction there as far as her thinking that she was not attractive to me or whatever. I said, no, it's not that. It's just I don't want to mess this up. <laughs> you know, I put my mouth on somebody, some shit that's going to happen. And um, I didn't want that at that time. You know, I said, and then she said, I think we've gotten past friends. So we really started having some serious conversations about, you know, uh, everything. And, um, you know, we wound up deciding to get married and I didn't kiss her till the preacher said you kiss the bride, you know, and everything on that end worked out really fine, you know, but I had to learn that I only had to do my part. I can't do her part. And if she needs to work on something, then that's for her to do. I can't fix that. I mean, I can talk to her about it and all that kind of thing, but um, and, and the thing, there was a little friction there about religion and stuff like she's a Christian and I'm not. Uh, we worked that out by, you know, I went to church with her for a while and did that thing. And 
but I always related the message to what I heard in NIA. And, you know, we're, we're really compatible because she said one time, I'm, I'm worried about my witness to you. And I said, it's not what you say, it's what you do. And she's a good woman. And I don't have a hard time being a good husband to her because, you know, I genuinely, I found out what real love is. It's taking infinite delight in someone else's well-being. And I really take infinite delight in her well-being. But I take infinite delight in mine, too. You know, I'm not going to put her in a position. We talk about everything. You know, when we make a decision, it's about something that we both have either compromised on or we agree on, or we don't do it. Do you think learning how to do that, loving yourself and to care about your own well-being opens the door for you to allow to be able to do that with other people, with your wife and your other relationships? That's the only way it works for me. And, and my sponsor helped me with that. You know, when we first got together, he would I would be talking to him. He said, well, how are you doing today? And I said, man, I feel like a worthless piece of shit. Or I was angry all the time. But his response every time to that was, that's just not what I see in you, J.W. And over a period of time, I believed he saw something. I still didn't feel it. I still was racked with guilt, shame. You know, when they would read how it works and it gets down to the, we become, we become acceptable, responsible, productive members. I, I could be productive and responsible, but I was not acceptable. And I never felt that for a very long time. And it was just a lie that I'd been told my whole life, you know, either in my head or by somebody else. But I don't know. It's a process, man. And, you know, after I actually thought about how much I had survived and, and why am I still here, I think that helped me a lot, too, that um, my sponsor saw something in me. So maybe I could do something of worth. And then, I, you know, he talked about self-esteem. He said, well, do things of esteem. And so I started doing that. I was in Walmart today, and this lady in one of those little motor hover rounds, you know, she asked me to get some drinks off of a top shelf for her. And I thought about what my sponsor said, do things of esteem, because she asked me to do it. And I thanked her. I said, I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to help someone today. I made it a point to let her know that I appreciated that. You know, she gave me a chance. I could have just walked right on by her. It gave me a chance to do something good for somebody. And, and I'm not, I'm aware of those opportunities and I take them wherever I can get them because I owe a debt. I owe a debt to society. I owe a debt. You know, I was locked up. They say you pay your debt to society. <laughs> I didn't get caught for everything. <laughs> <laughs> I still owe some debt. <laughs> Well, Jay, get this. I'm yes. gonna shift gears just a little bit because I actually okay. heard you speak uh, at a convention, and I think I had about six months clean whenever I heard you speak for the first time. And it's actually like the the first time that I ever seen a man get emotional about the literature. And I remember something that you said, but I had no idea where it came from. And uh, later on, I discovered 
that it came from the living clean. The journey continues. And it was, you said, we have found a way in. Most of the time we've looked for a way out. But something yeah. that really, you know, struck me was we had found a way in to life, yeah. freedom, yeah. passion, and to limitless growth. Yes. And when you shared that, and I seen how emotional you got about that paragraph out of that book. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about that paragraph? <laughs> the first time I ever read that, I broke down. There was still that part of me that's broken. There's still that part of me that doesn't feel worthy. There's still that part of me that was bullied as a little kid. You know, I, I still feel that hurt. But when it was talking about, um, it talks about we find the capacity of our own, or something like that. I, I can't remember exactly what it said, but it says something about finding uh, the capacity of our own hearts. Oh, man. You know, for me to love you like I do, I didn't ever think I could feel that way about people. And, um, you know, it, it's a beautiful thing when you realize that, um, I mean, it talks about we found a way into life, to freedom, to passion. We are no longer trapped in a process driven by our own desperation. Something different happens as we move into recovery, motivated by passion, hope, and excitement. We are released into our own lives. But the first time I read that, I remember the feeling of getting out of prison. When I walked out in the free world again, I had been released from that. But when I read that line, it doesn't matter where I'm at. I got free in the penitentiary, if you want to look at it that way. When I found that book, it gave, when I would look out the window, I'd think freedom was just on the other side of that second fence. But after I started reading this literature, I, I looked at it different. And I said, hell, I can be free in here. Free from some things that um said we're freed from the feeling that we must constantly be on guard. We're free to discover the capacity of our own hearts. We're being closed down. We have the ability to love and care for others deeply, more deeply than we had imagined. You know, the only thing I ever cared about in my whole life was my kids. I mean, I got connected to them. You know, my sisters were important to me. My mom and dad were important to me. But my kids, you know, were innocent. When I read all that, you know, I knew that I could be somebody different and I was worth it because then it happened to me. I don't know where I'd be if I hadn't found Narcotics Anonymous. And I used to say this all the time. The greatest gift God ever gave me was N.A. The greatest gift N.A. gave me was you because I never had connections like, you know. I had some really good connects. Made me a lot of money. But it didn't fill that hole inside my soul. Y'all have filled up many places inside of me that nothing else will because that's what belongs there. That's what I've been looking for my whole life. There's places inside of my wife has a place inside of me that nothing else will fit. I can try to stick other shit in there and it don't fit. It ain't gonna work. 
you've got a place inside of me that nothing else fits. That's what goes there. And I didn't ever know about that. You know, I was trying to, when I first got here, they always talked about it. It's an inside job. I had no idea what the hell is talking about. <laughs> you know, the spiritual aspect. There's another place in the book where it talks about, you know, practicing spiritual principles doesn't make us spiritual at all. But what's really happening is we are awakening to what's been happening to us our whole lives. Spirituality is our natural state. The first time I read that, I thought, well, shit, that's why I've been in conflict my whole life. I've lived in an unnatural state. In that mental and physical part of me, I never lived from the spiritual part of me, but that's what's been trying to connect. And I kept putting all this man-made shit in there, and I couldn't get to the spiritual part to live from it. And I has given me that. Our literature has given me ways, the words to describe my experience. And it's a beautiful thing. I don't know, man. It's been a hell of a journey. I know that. Um, I wouldn't give it up for anything that the disease has to give me. Fuck that so much. It ain't nothing for me. I hate the disease like you would for somebody that killed your family because that's what it does. You know, I had a friend of mine that he went to prison after I met him. We got connected for a couple of years, and then he did some stupid shit and went to prison. had to do seven years flat, and I wrote him while he was in there. And he got out, and he started living again. And, you know, relationships was his downfall, too. And uh, he got this relationship. And instead of going to a meeting one night, he was going to see this girl, and he had a head-on collision and got killed. And I blamed the disease, you know. And it seemed like in the mornings when I'd get up, the disease was sitting over, you know, saying, hey, guess what I did while you was asleep last night? I was out there killing folks. And and I know that's true. I know that's the truth because that's all it can do. My response to it was, you know, you didn't get me. And I'm going to go out and tell the truth about you. And that's the best I can hope for, man. I don't know who will believe it or not or who will get connected to it. I just know I'm going to keep trying my best to convince people just to keep coming back. You ain't going to believe what I believe. Just keep being exposed to it. People say you can't get it by osmosis. I don't believe that. I believe if you go to enough meetings, the shit is going to permeate you in a way that you may go back out and use, but it ain't going to be the same no more. It ain't going to be the same. Hell no. The little voice in your head is going, I don't have to do this. I know a way out. They tell us that we become a product of our environment, you know, so something has to rub off. Yeah. Yeah. I've been exposed many times. I love it, man. It's, It's my favorite thing to do is to get around and talk about recovery and, you know, tell stories. And some of them's funny. Everybody don't think they're funny, though. You know, most ordinary people would think they're a tragedy, my wife included. You know, she's told me many times that stuff y'all was talking about is not funny. I said, it's fucking hilarious, man. <laughs> she goes, how do you think it's hilarious? I said, because we survived it. We've already cried and anguished over it. Now it's time to laugh at it. You know, I mean, the insanity of some of our. 
stupid shit, man. It's just been like, and we survived it and didn't you. That's the message. You can do anything you want to do and don't use. The shit will get heavy enough. Sooner or later, you ain't going to be able to tote it no more. And you'll lay it down if you get around the right people, you know. Right. That can, or, and we can help you carry it for a while and sit back and laugh at your dumb ass when you <laughs> put on a pair of goggles and somebody pushes you and you bust your head wide open and do some stupid shit. All right, man. So before we wrap it up, I want to talk about something um, that's near and dear to me and Travis too. And I know it's special to you and that's uh, H&I, um, especially because you was exposed to the literature and while you were incarcerated, most likely came from somebody that was doing H&I and uh, yep. you've had the ability to be able to do that since you got clean. Uh, what's that experience been like? I went to an H&I workshop over in Memphis, Tennessee, and this was crazy. I was locked up in Louisiana and Texas. I lived in Miss. I live in Mississippi. I went back to Tennessee for an H&I workshop, and a guy from Oklahoma, two guys from Oklahoma, came down and did the workshop for the Southern Zone Forum. The next day, I met one of them in the parking lot. We were talking, and I figured out he he, he had done H&I in that prison I was in. And the counselor had relapsed and, and gotten fired, so he couldn't come in anymore. But he was the guy that brought the literature in that I found. And, and if that ain't a God thing, I don't know what it is. But I got to hug him and tell him, you know, thank you for saving my life and you know, his response was, man, I was just trying to stay clean. Mm. And, you know, I tell that story, and to me, it, it just reinforces the importance of carrying the message to people that can't leave the facility they're in to go to an outside meeting. You know, we take it into them. What they do with that is left up to them. You know, I've been doing H&I for over 20 years in this one treatment center. I know all the staff. I know the director. We've had really personal, you know, relationships with those folks. And people come and go in there. You know, and I always make it a point to tell them, you're sitting in a dead man or a dead woman's seat right now. Somebody sat there before you that went back out and used, and they're dead now. Mm -hmm. But you have an opportunity. You have survived your disease's best efforts to kill you so far. But it ain't never going to stop, ever. So carrying the message that was given to me, I didn't come up with it. I didn't write none of this shit, you know. I just tell them what happened to me. And I tell them right quick, I'm here to stay clean. This is what I do to stay clean. Is I tell you the truth that I have. I can't tell you what's going to happen to you. And I just say, invite them to come to a meeting. And, and we have people come to our meetings that, you know, we expose them to the message in our experience. Yeah, that feeling that when that person walks in there that you've actually took H&I to. I had that yeah. happen to me not too long ago. And you see that yeah. person walk up in there and, you know, they ain't in that orange jumpsuit. Yeah. You know, yeah. whatever facility that you're actually in. And it's like, it's such a a great feeling to think that you just played just a little bit of part, you know, and helping somebody yeah. that helps you so much. And that, that's the part that I like Travis is 
is knowing that I've done my part. Mm -hmm. I didn't do the whole damn thing. But they, it, it was in a chain of events or there are paths crossed in that moment. You know, I, I got a basic text that was given to a girl named Kim by a guy named uh, Albert in 1994. I was still using. I got it in 98. That book laid somewhere. I'm sure in different places, it was brand spanking new when I got it, with that message from Kim, from Albert to Kim, but it was my book. <laughs> she, she never used it. I wish I could find Albert and Kim. But, um, you know, I tell that story before, and, and this girl come up to me, and she said, let me see your book. And she was born on that day mm. that's in that book. And I said, well, you've been walking your whole life to get to this spot. I felt that. I've been walking my whole life to get to that spot. What the hell that means? I have no idea. <laughs> I just know it happened. And it was crazy, you know? And I have stuff like that happen that, hey, it's, I know it's, uh, my second wife called it synchronicity. It has happened over and over and over that I'm aware there's something happening here. To that point that you're making right there, uh, what's interesting is before I ever met you, uh, I had 26 days clean that convention Travis is talking about. I heard you speak, and I seen you get up there with your overalls and no shoes on, and I thought, <laughs> this looks just like the people I was just hanging out with 26 days ago. But I heard you share, <laughs> and I said, if he can make it, so can I. But I think yeah. back to... That journey started all the way back at when you picked up that introductory guide and then somebody yep. carried the message to the guy who brought that in there. And then yep. ultimately, you know, you've been able to give that message, you know, you've been a big influence on me and Travis both, you know, and, and then we've been able to do it ourselves. So it's like, we're yep. so synchronized in this. And, you know, the sad thing is, is like you said, the disease, man, unfortunately, some of them have to pay the ultimate price so that the rest of us can live. But I believe this, that we are people that hold the fabric of society together. We're woven in there. Mm -hmm. As fucked up as we are, we, we, I mean, we get, we get out there and we do some good stuff and there's somebody going to start using for the first time tonight. God, I hope I'm still alive when they walk in. You know what I'm saying? But if I ain't, I'm hoping that somebody will give them something, a hug or whatever, like they gave me. You know, our group is fixing to celebrate 40, 42 years. We're going to celebrate this year. They kept that meeting open. Uh, 81, I got clean in 96. I didn't get there until 98. 17 years, knowing I was on my way. Yeah, took me 17 years to get there <laughs> but the doors were open when i got there that's that's pretty cool that is unbelievable man to think <laughs> it in those terms before we go is there anything that you would like to say to somebody who may be listening to this because we're worldwide now somebody may be listening to this and they may be on the verge of am i going to stay am i going to go i'll say this na has given me a life that's worth living. The disease of addiction took my life that was worth living. 
And it stalls so much for me that, you know, I go to every meeting that I can. There's a few I miss every once in a while. But the reason I go is I believe that people show up. They've been toting something their whole life just for me. Mm -hmm. It may take us several years to find out what that is because it's hidden inside of them underneath all that bullshit that we bring into the rooms. So one, you know, I, I love watching people get clean, stay clean and get better. And then I start getting that, you know, that soul shine and it's, it's just beautiful. It's a beautiful thing. And I like to be a part of that. You know, it's pretty cool. Keep coming back whether you want to or not. And don't use no matter what, no matter what. Yeah. You know, getting clean did not change anything on the outside. Me getting clean didn't stop my dad from getting Alzheimer's or my wife from getting Parkinson's or, you know, me doing stupid shit. It didn't stop that, but it changed something on the inside of me to where when my dad needed me, I could be there for him. I got to be a good son for my dad, for my mom. I got to be a good brother for my sisters. You know, I'm a good husband to my wife. And they gave me that. My sponsor gave me that. It's worth hanging on to. I know that. And it's worth giving it away. We keep what we have by giving it away. How the hell do you keep something if you give it away? You know, you're talking about what you got in your pocket. Talking about what you got inside of you that somebody else. You know, that's the thing about it. We have something that can't be taken. You can't take it from me. I have to offer it to you. Then you have to accept it. And then it's yours. But I still got mine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's the yeah. cool part. Yeah. Is, you know, I mean, it's, uh, I had a vision about that one time, but we'll talk about that at a different time. Well, JW, man, we sure appreciate it. And the last thing I want to say is um, happy fucking birthday, man. 27 yeah. years. Yeah. Fuck the disease. Fuck the disease. You disease. I'm talking to the fuck you. I'm talking to the disease. Kiss my ass. Hell yeah. And you've been telling it that for 27 years, man. 27 fucking years, baby. Huh? Yeah. Congratulations. 90. How many days is it? 90 something thousand? 9,000. No, 9,000. 862. Yeah. 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 There's supposed to be some big deal about getting 10,000 days. Sounds yeah. like a hell of an accomplishment. Yeah. I just won't get through today, man. No doubt. <laughs> get the Let me get through today. <laughs> Absolutely. I love well, y'all. All right, buddy. We love you, man. Thank you for joining us on our Living Clean podcast. This is another platform that we can share our message of recovery, which is an addict, any addict, can stop using drugs, lose a desire to use, and find a new way to live join that no matter what club you can contact us through text the number is 931-306-9364